Welcome to the Modern Day Wisdom Keepers podcast, a podcast produced by the Center for Sacred Arts, where we elevate the voices of modern day wisdom keepers, exploring and re-envisioning what it means to be human. These voices are not always the loudest in the room, but in our opinion, are some of the wisest. In my practice, what I always try and do is put the onus back on the patient to say, this is what's going on for you on the outside, if you like, the objective aspects. Now, what about subjective? How does that feel for you? How is that landing for you? Do you understand the choices you're being given? Do you understand the implications? Do you understand that there even is a choice for you in this process? Which, frankly, they often don't know that they have choice. Mm -hmm. They just become passive recipients. And I find that so interesting, Carly, because if you were buying a house or a car or a washing machine. You would do tons of research. You would read about the different models. You would go to consumer reports and look at what people have said about it. If you were going to buy a house, you'd look at 20 houses before you made a decision. Why do people assume that the first doctor they see has all the right answers all the time? And actually what you end up with, of course, is that the doctors themselves are victims of the system as much as the patient. There is not time for them to explain themselves properly to the patient. There is not time for the patient to ask the questions. Actually, they don't even know what questions to ask a lot of the time. So they just take it at face value. And I find that extraordinary. Probably the biggest single decision you're ever going to make in your life. And you just first doctor says, do this, and you do it. Like, mm -hmm. Why? <laughs> 50 to 70% of us will receive and endure a cancer diagnosis. For most of us, that statistic is terrifying. For my guest today, it's what's driven her career as a medical herbalist. In this episode, I get to sit down with Shenshel Cabrera, a medical herbalist who has been in clinical practice for 35 years and has specialized focus in holistic oncology. Shanchelle is one of the most remarkable clinicians I've had the pleasure of learning from and working with. She enters the therapeutic relationship with patients, prioritizing the patient's dignity and honors their ability to make informed decisions. Shanchelle has a gift for seeing people as whole people with a capacity to heal and make educated, informed choices in every step of their medical journey. Shanchelle has recently released a new book, a leading edge guide for both patients and practitioners navigating the world of oncology. The book is called Holistic Cancer Care, an approach to reducing cancer risk, helping patients thrive during treatment and minimizing recurrence. The book was released to the public only a few weeks ago. Shanchelle has been a faculty member and teacher for many different institutions. She publishes widely in professional journals and lectures internationally on medical herbalism, nutrition, and health. This is a professional woman not short of academic accolades with an exceptional reputation throughout the scientific and herbal communities. Shanchelle is certified in Shinrin-yoku, forest bathing, a certified master gardener, and a certified horticulture therapist. She lives on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, where she and her husband manage Innisfree Farm, a botanic garden, a seven-acre internationally registered botanic garden specializing in food and medicinal plants, and where they host apprenticeships in sustainable food production and herbal medicine. The farm also hosts Garden Without Borders, a federally registered not-for-profit society established to run the botanic garden and provide horticultural therapy. Shinjel Cabrera is inspiring, courageous, and a leading force in holistic oncology. The combination of her smart as a wet mind and her huge, generous heart are what I believe has made it possible for her to gift humanity with this new book. The conversation to follow is thought-provoking, brave, brilliant, human, truthful, and rich. So let us begin. So hi, Shanchelle. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today and celebrate your new book, which is being released, Holistic Cancer Care. So first off, I just wanted to say congratulations. It's out. It's in the world. I mean, this has been a huge undertaking to write a book that is for the patient, for people that are supporting patients, as well as for the practitioner. 
And I think I want to acknowledge um, the undertaking of reviewing and detailing many of those cytotoxic herbs, <laughs> which are so helpful in oncology, but also so scary to so many practitioners. And to get the research and the information about these toxic herbs probably wasn't an easy undertaking. So I can't wait to get into that today as well. As I mentioned before we hopped on for the podcast, I spent the weekend devouring and sort of recalibrating my own approach and how I can support patients as well as friends, family members, and who knows, even I might be one of those 50 to 70% of people that get a diagnosis one day. So I found the book very, very valuable for all readers. And I guess, Chenchel, what I wanted to start today with was for our listener just to have a chance to hear where you're coming from and a little bit about your background and, and what brought you to this point in your career. Hmm. Thank you, Carly, for that introduction. And it is a pleasure to be with you today on the podcast. And it is a pleasure to have completed that book. <laughs> it definitely was a labor of love. It took two years to write, but it was 20 years of specializing in holistic cancer care in clinic prior to writing and 35 years in clinic altogether. So yes, you asked about my background. So very briefly, I got interested in herbal medicine really young. My parents ran an organic farm back in the 70s before it was even called organic. We called it chemical free and we were definitely weird in the community. We were in a very agricultural community in Wales, big dairy farmers, and my parents were hand milking their Jersey cows. And when we butchered, every animal had a name. So we'd eat our steak and name the cow and go to school with brown bread sandwiches and home cured ham and homemade cheese. And nobody would trade sandwiches with me. So I sort of came up into natural medicine very naturally, very organically, really. My father eventually got quite sick and went to seek help from David Hoffman, who at that time was a new grad, young herbalist just getting started in Wales. He went on to become a very leading herbalist in North America. But I was 14 when I first met David, and he came to my parents' farm and showed my dad some of the plants that he could pick for himself, which my dad, by the way, continued to pick his own herbs for another 40 years. <laughs> at the very end of his life, he had an incident where he picked what he thought was wild garlic, but it turned out to be snowdrops. And he had my mum and himself very, very sick from eating snowdrops, which are deadly poison. So he never picked up to that. He said his vision in his 80s wasn't good enough to separate the garlic from the snowdrops. But he did learn to do a little bit of his own herbal medicine in that way from David back in the 70s. And I saw that and watched my dad get better and got interested in the plants that way. And subsequently, I lived in India for a while, and I worked uh, with Tibetan refugees. So I was 18, 19, 20. I was there for two and a half years. And I worked with Tibetan refugees in a TB clinic in northern India, where they were getting seroconversions of TB, which theoretically isn't possible, but actually, apparently, it was happening there. I wasn't educated enough to have very good questions at the time. I just helped out in the clinic in any way I could and got super interested in herbal medicines that way, as well as my family's experience. So eventually went back to the UK and took myself into herb school in 1983. I graduated in 1987. So I did a four-year program in full-time program in herbal medicine in England. At the time, it was a small private college giving you a diploma. It subsequently became a Bachelor of Science degree. I did not get the bachelor's. I was 10 years ahead of that. But I did go back after 15 years of clinical practice. I went back and did a Master of Science in Herbal Medicine at the University of Wales. So I graduated from my diploma program, practiced for 15 years in a general practice, doing a little bit of everything. I'd landed into Vancouver. I was started to teach at the Dominion Herbal College and the Wild Rose College and running a herbal store called Gaia Garden Herbal Apothecary. And then at a certain point, about 15 years in, I'm like, you know, every day is a challenge because every patient is interesting, but I have managed to help an awful lot of people now with asthma and menopause and eczema and arthritis. And it's all great, but I wasn't learning anymore in clinic. I wasn't being challenged in my practice. And so I took myself back to school 
to do the Masters of Science and was lucky enough to get hired into a clinic in Oregon that is a cancer-focused clinic with Donnie Yance. And Donnie is a very brilliant herbalist. He has a high school diploma and no further formal education, but he's very, very brilliant. And I apprenticed myself effectively after 15 years as a clinician. I went back and apprenticed myself to Donnie for two years. And he had me doing research in his clinic about long-term survivors of breast cancer that were under his care. And the response of the patients was so profound for me. I was like, my goodness, some of these people actually still had cancer 10 years out, but they were living well. And so my dissertation in the end was called Living with Breast Cancer. And it was literally about long-term survivors of breast cancer and what they had taken to get there and, and how they were coping. And so a lot of quality of life measurements, very inspiring, very educational. And consequently, subsequently, I ended up specializing in cancer care in my practice. And that's been almost 20 years now. So I do have a general practice. I do see all sorts of everything, but I would say it's 80, 85% cancer care at this point. You're still seeing the menopause and the asthma and eczema, but your passion is in the more complicated cancer care at this point. Yeah, I see all sorts of people with all sorts of conditions and concerns. And of course, just because you have cancer doesn't mean you don't have a bunch of other things going on. So for example, last week, I was dealing with a young woman in her 30s with a very, very advanced endometrial and ovarian cancer. She's already had new many years of therapy and work from other practitioners. But along the way, she's developed a heart condition, um, probably as a consequence of some of the chemos. And so last week we were working out emergency formula for her heart. She gets massive, very sudden onset tachycardia. So I was working out drops for her to take under the tongue directly to slow the heart in that moment. It's not going to treat the underlying problem, but she has a catastrophic symptom that she can't function with. So we're trying to do herbs for that. So those are on top of or in addition to a cancer protocol. So yes, I work with all sorts of everything, but mostly cancer. And these days, Carly, mostly referrals from other practitioners, because for better or worse, cancer, despite it being so incredibly prevalent, is still very scary for a lot of practitioners. And I understand that because before I went to graduate school and took this sort of specialty training, I also felt like many practitioners do, sort of hopeless and helpless. It's like it's a big disease and it's a big, scary disease and there's big, scary drugs. And so a lot of practitioners aren't willing to put themselves or their herbs in that mix. Obviously, I have a very different attitude to it now. But back 15, 20 years ago, I would say that I, like many people today, would have referred on. And now I happen to be the one that a lot of people refer to. So I get very complicated cases, often people who haven't done well in the mainstream or having side effects from the drugs or whatever. So Shenzhou, let's start by talking a little bit about, in your book, you mentioned the tumor-centered focus of care versus the patient-centered focus of care. And that's really what you just brought up about that one patient of yours. She's not popping over to a cardiologist and then back to her oncologist and then back to whoever's managing her reproductive cancers. And so maybe I could just pass the floor over to you to talk about the difference between those two models and I guess the context of, of how you address a case, the variables between the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really, really fundamental difference. And it isn't really just about cancer. It's about medicine altogether. The issues we're looking at is specific to the cancer discussion, the tumor-centered approach versus the patient-centered approach. So the tumor-centered approach, and again, it could be for other conditions, not just cancer, but disease focus. So what is the name of your disease? What is the pathway that it has taken? And what are the drugs or other interventions that can be offered sort of from the outside to force the body into different behaviors? And of course, in the world of cancer, that largely means surgery, chemo, radiation, very big treatments for obviously a very big condition. But patient-centered medicine is really about 
who has the disease? It goes back to that old quote that is probably attributed to Hippocrates about it is more important to know what kind of person has a disease than what kind of disease a person has. And it's a very trite little saying, but it's incredibly profound because 10 women with breast cancer will not get the same treatment plan. They will get 10 different treatment plans. And even in very conventional mainstream medical practice, they may get different chemo cocktails or different timings before surgery, following surgery, various different models that are applied, but they're all applied in a not putting the patient front and center. So those strategies, should we do surgery first or chemo first? Shall we do paclitaxel or carboplatin or both of them together? Those decisions are largely not made per patient. They're made per medical center. So medical center A has this model that they tend to roll out. Medical center B will have a slightly different model that they tend to roll out. So almost all the breast cancer patients in that medical center will get very similar strategies. It's rarely customized. So patient-centered practice would say, okay, let's look at who has the disease and how do we approach that whole person? So for example, somebody who's had a history of uh, kidney disease may not be a good candidate for platinum-based drugs because carboplatin, oxaliplatin, they're very, very hard on the kidneys. But if your medical center has that as a standard of care, you're going to get offered it even though you may have had a history of kidney disease. And then they will do what they can to compensate for the ongoing kidney damage. What a holistic approach might suggest would be, well, okay, that drug probably isn't the best one for you. So what else can we do? And more to the point, what tests could we run to see what drugs would serve you best? So the gold standard, and I did write about this in my book, although I will have to say it's not done in Canada really at all. This is a, a, an American practice, but you can, in fact, take fresh biopsy tissue and grow it out in a lab and expose it to different chemo cocktails and see which one works and which ones don't work. So this is called sensitivity and resistance testing. And if you're sensitive to a certain cocktail, even if it's not the one your medical center would have used, or even if it's not actually approved for your cancer, hey, if your cancer responds to it, then that's probably the one you should be taking. In contrast to the cocktail that is approved for your cancer, but to which your tissue doesn't actually necessarily respond. So just as we would do that for you have a really bad strep throat, what antibiotics should you take or a really bad repeating bladder infection, what antibiotic will work? They culture it and put the antibiotics in to see which one is going to work. Why do we not do that for cancer? The technology exists. It is being done in some centers in the US. To me, it's like sensible, totally sensible to take a sample out and test the drugs before exposing every cell in your body to those toxins. Yeah, especially when the risks are so high, right? It's, yeah. I mean, you try the wrong antibiotic with the bladder infection and you just know you still have the bladder infection. But, you know, when it's life and death with how many of these cancers are, it seems like it would be a no brainer. So is it a numbers game? Or is it the model? I try not to get myself tied up in all the reasons why the system is failing the patient. Because honestly, I could spend a lot of my energy on fretting about how the system is failing and the system is broken. And I think that we have to get past that point and work the system to the best possible end for the patient. I really genuinely don't believe that the doctors, the oncologists themselves are very happy with the system either. They all signed up to be doctors because they want to help people get better. And we all know that the system doesn't really do that. The system is so, the system, the medical system that we work in isn't a healthcare system. It's an illness care system. We don't practice prevention. We wait until we're in crisis. And then we scramble for answers. And because of the nature of the beast, we go with drugs that have been approved, even though there may be other options that could be better. So really what we're talking about, the way this came to me 
was actually years and years ago, what we used to do, what we used to practice was called alternative medicine as a naturopath or a herbalist, whatever. We were alternative. And that's incredibly unfair to the patient because then you're going to choose this one or that one. Alternatives means one or the other. And that's really not appropriate much of the time. So for a long time, we were called complementary practitioners. And there's CAM, you know, complementary and alternative medicine. But actually, when you take that to pieces and unpack it, it's a little bit derogatory to the non-licensed practitioners. It's sort of, you know, there's the doctors and we complement them in some way. And so probably, I don't know, 25 years ago, maybe a little longer, a whole bunch of CAM practitioners started to reframe it as integrated medicine or integrative medicine. And that seemed quite good. It seemed like we can integrate all the best of many different disciplines. And yeah, that that sort of fit quite well. And then some years ago, I was talking to an ethnobotanist, Dr. Pierre Haddad, And Pierre had been working with indigenous elders in northern Quebec, working on, as an ethnobotanist, working on their natural medicines, their approach to herbs and so on. In particular, his specialty is with diabetes. And the elders, the First Nations elders, indigenous elders had said to him that they didn't like the term integrated medicine. So yes, they might be taking drugs for their diabetes, but they were going to use herbs as well. And Dr. Haddad was referring to that as integrated medicine. And they're like, hang on a minute. Integration for indigenous peoples in Canada has historically meant homogenization, loss of culture, theft of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to be integrated. Thank you very much. So... Pierre said to them, well, how do I refer to this medicine? It's not alternative because you're doing mainstream and herbal and shamanic and all these other practices. And we know the complementary isn't really acceptable language anymore. So what is wrong with integration and what should we call it? And they came up with the term, and I have used this term now for many years, they came up with the term collaborative medicine. And that to me is really powerful because that is patient-centered medicine. When it's collaborative, what it is saying is patients in the middle and all the therapeutic disciplines and care and support around that person are all about that individual in the center. So theoretically, ideally, it would be a round table. And you would have the oncologist, the nurse practitioner, the care attendant, the family members, the herbalist, the spiritual healer, all of these players would be in the room with the patient to all offer their best support to help each other to help the patient better. That's the ideal. That would be true patient-centered medicine. As it is, we're still a bit siloed. I do my work. I write a report. I'll send that to an oncologist I don't usually get reports back from them. I'll see the pathology reports and the drug histories, but there's not enough of a two-way street at this point. The patient is still becoming the conduit for the information going around the table. But nonetheless, in my practice, what I always try and do is put the onus back on the patient to say, this is what's going on for you on the outside, if you like, the objective aspects. Now, what about subjective? How does that feel for you? How is that landing for you? Do you understand the choices you're being given? Do you understand the implications? Do you understand that there even is a choice for you in this process, which frankly, they often don't know that they have choice. Mm -hmm. They just become passive recipients. And I find that so interesting, Carly, because if you were buying a house or a car or a washing machine. You would do tons of research. You would read about the different models. You would go to consumer reports and look at what people have said about it. You might, if you were going to buy a house, you'd look at 20 houses before you made a decision. Why do people assume that the first doctor they see has all the right answers all the time? And actually, what you end up with, of course, is that the doctors themselves are victims of the system as much as the patient. There is not time for them to explain themselves properly to the patient. There is not time for the patient to ask the questions. Actually, they don't even know what questions to ask a lot of the time. So they just take it at face value. And I find that extraordinary. Probably 
the biggest single decision you're ever going to make in your life. And you just, first doctor says, do this and you do it. Like, mm-hmm. Why? <laughs> from treating patients and also hearing from family members and friends, there seems to be a huge time pressure on making decisions. And well, then if this happens and I have to do chemo, well, really, is that your only option is that you that you then have to do chemo? I think a lot of patients, there's a language I've found also around oncology where it's very heroic in a lot of ways. Like I'm going to beat this. I have to fight this, you know, in medicine in general, I'd say, but I know what you're talking about with regards to you're going to go buy a, a washing machine and you've read every review on Best Buy, but you don't even ask a further question. Your book is really helpful in that way, Chanchelle, because there are, there's, I mean, there was pages on the questions and the conversations to have with your with your doctors. And when they don't have the time to explain, you know, the type of tumor, also in your book, there was a lot of information that is digestible for a patient or a support person that I guess allows them to even understand the language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think in clinic, that's a lot of our work, actually. And you you probably run into this as well, is actually interpreting the findings for patients. So I, for example, collect all the blood work and graph it myself so that I can see the spreads over time because I don't want to be just flipping loads of pages. Mm-hmm. So I actually put it all on a one page graph. And then I discover that the patient has all kinds of things showing up in their blood work for which they have absolutely no, nobody's ever spoken to them about it. And so if it's something that they, that could be treated, then they may be on a treatment for a certain thing, but they don't understand what their blood work is telling them. They don't understand what their biopsy reports are telling them. And, you know, specifically in cancer, for example, if you get that biopsy report and and it's detailed enough to have the mitotic index showing and you can see from there that yes you have a cancer but it's actually really indolent it's really not replicating fast because you can see that in the biopsy then maybe you don't have to rush into the most aggressive chemo yet maybe you could take 3 months to do a protocol even if you end up on that chemo you could get stronger and more resilient to take the chemo better so a lot of the time what i'm suggesting to patients in the first instance of diagnosis is take a deep breath take a step back and don't make any decisions for at least a month because mm-hmm. after all once you get diagnosed that cancer has probably been there for at least a few years 2 to 5 years is not uncommon now there are extreme circumstances i Lost a friend last week who had two weeks from diagnosis to death. He had a blood cancer. It was done. He felt a little unwell, went to the doctor, was sent home for palliative care from that spot, you know, and he was dead two weeks later. That's very unusual. Typically, we have some time to get our head around the diagnosis and to come up with a game plan, to come up with some strategies to tolerate whatever else is going to happen. If you're going to do surgery, then you want to take a month before surgery to prep your body and be ready for it. If you're going to do chemo, you want to take time to learn how to succeed at chemo, how to make chemo tolerable and even more effective. That doesn't happen overnight. You can't do that research and put those plans in place in an instant. So a lot of the time in my clinic, when I have a newly diagnosed patient, I'm the one saying, slow down, just slow down a little bit. You have time. You have time to figure it out and get it right. Because otherwise, you jump into treatment. It didn't turn out to be the best choice. And now you've got to undo that damage and try to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. I guess it's just that, I don't know, human tendency when there's a bear, you start running, right? Yep, and so- you bet. And I think this, the system, again, also fosters that, that mm-hmm. sense of urgency or even panic. And so a lot of our work, I think, is about de-stressing the situation. Can you just speak a little bit to Shenshell how you've seen patients, I guess, go through their cancer journey, those that have been able to de-stress and those that have had support for, you know, adaptogenic, you have whole chapters in your book here on adaptogens and stress support, what it looks like when you go through cancer from that model versus that reactionary uh, high stress model. Can you talk a little bit about 
the outcomes and quality of life, I guess, over quantity or, or whatever the other models. Well, I don't think you can go through a cancer journey without stress. I think mm-hmm. that's just part of the deal, isn't it, for the patient and right. for the care support people around them. There is stress, of course. We also do need to remember that depending on what statistics you read, anywhere from 50 to 70 percent of us are going to have a cancer diagnosis. So it is stressful, but it's also not unexpected. However, it seems that most of us prefer to spend our life with our head in the sand and pretend it will never happen to us. So when it does happen, it is a big stress. It feels like a big shock. So even though we can intellectualize and say, well, you know, half of us are going to meet this diagnosis, when it is your diagnosis, that is a huge stress factor. As you well know, as our listeners well know, stress creates a set of hormones in the body that are activating the immune system, of course, because the assumption in the physiology is that stress equals physical danger and that you're going to need to heal in some way. You're going to have, you know, the saber-toothed tiger scratching down your back or chewing on your leg or whatever. And so you're going to need to do some physical healing. So we produce all the hormones that regulate the or upregulate the immune system. So in a sense, you could say, oh, stress might be useful because you need your immune system active for fighting cancer. And that may be true, but it's about which parts of the immune system are doing what and for how long, because there's a threshold when the immune system becomes kind of depleted and exhausted. And you can't keep demanding and demanding and demanding without some recuperation and recovery time. What you don't get with this diagnosis, because you live with this fear and all the treatments that are thrown at you and the medical system does foster that fear and going into chemo, going into radiation. This is a scary situation for patients. So what I always suggest is that you might be able to sort of superficially fix some of the immediate problem by, you know, doing some surgery and taking out that primary tumor. But fundamentally, you haven't changed the terrain. And so that's what dealing with stress is about, is about changing terrain. And terrain is the foundations, right? So in my book, I go through a very, very simple model of the pyramid prescribing principle. Nothing special. I didn't make this up. It's a well-established model in medicine. But you look at the foundations first, and then the comorbidities, the side effects, the other conditions that may be running, and then finally the activator or the specific herbs for the specific problem. But the foundation comes first because, you know, if I start giving a patient a whole lot of cytotoxic herbs to treat their cancer, but their liver is super burdened because of their past lifestyle or their drug therapies, chemo or other drugs, they may not tolerate my cytotoxic herbs very well because they don't have the resilience in the system to cope with a poison coming through. So I'm always going to start with the foundation. And the book is built around that. The first half of the book really is a little bit about managing the consequences of chemo and surgery, but a lot about building foundation. You can't put really strong cytotoxic herbs into somebody who isn't strong enough and resilient enough to tolerate them. And I could say that's true of chemo as well. So I've seen patients who are very debilitated and very weak, and then they're given chemo. Mm-hmm. And they complete surgery and then they have to recover. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So I'm really about building before treating. And this is super old naturopathic principles, nothing groundbreaking here. I would have to say in the book, I don't think I wrote anything that most good, well-trained herbalists and naturopaths wouldn't be familiar with, excepting what I've done is applied it to very contemporary practice. So taking some really old concepts and reframing them in modern times, especially the cytotoxics, as you mentioned, very hard to find the research. So an awful lot of my referencing is actually going back 100 plus years because they were using those herbs, which we've largely let go of or have become afraid of. So it was hard to find the research for that. But generally speaking, it's about building the whole person. And yes, fighting cancer, and you can use all that that military language if you wish. But at the end of the day, that person isn't going to thrive if their foundation isn't strong. 
I think a really nice reflection on that is even when we were working with you as a family and treating my father, I kept on reviewing his blood work neurotically, thinking and just waiting to see his liver enzymes go off because of the cytotoxic herbs that he was taking. But all that we noticed over time was that his liver enzymes were getting better. All of his organs and all of his lab work was doing very, very well with all of the support and that those cytotoxic herbs were being managed through his body because everything else was being so heavily supported. And so I think that's my biggest reference point for seeing how those herbs can can work very effectively and very, very safely in the body when they're used properly. And at the end of the day, it's about quality of life, isn't it? And patients will say this repeatedly. I don't want to live longer if I'm going to be sick and miserable and a burden Mm -hmm. to all people around me and having no fun. What is the point? Again and again and again, we hear this. It's about quality of life. So I find addressing foundation is what you have to do in order to get that quality of life. And then you can talk about how to deal with the side effects of other treatments, getting them through surgery, et cetera, and treating the cancer. Mm-hmm. But it's really at the end, and this was you know, with my dissertation all those years ago, I called it living with breast cancer because some of those patients were still 10 years with their cancer. In fact, in my book, I've got three case reviews. Two of those patients are cancer-free. One of them did nothing but uh, lumpectomy and followed up with herbs. One of them had done surgery and chemo by the time it was in chemo when she came to my clinic. But the third patient in the book, a bladder cancer patient, he is now, oh gosh, I'm going to say he's at least three years out since the doctor said he was in his last few weeks. He wrote to me not long ago asking for help with a torn Achilles tendon because he was playing softball and injured himself. (laughs) And he lives with cancer. He's had cancer since before he started in my clinic in 2017. He still has cancer. Yeah. But he's well. He's in If he's playing softball, that's a good email to get. (laughs) He's traveling. He's got a quality of life, which makes him want to keep going with this, even though he has cancer. And probably that cancer will take him down at some point. But right now, his symptoms are very manageable. His quality of life is high. And to me, that's a great success. And honestly, when this gentleman passes away, I will still consider this was a great success for herbal medicine because he outlived all expectations with quality of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it really comes down to what the patient's goal is, right? Is Do they want the quality of life where they're playing softball and mowing their lawn or whatever it is for them? Or are they wanting to make it to the graduation or you know that more of quality exactly. or the quantity of life? Mm-hmm. Chantal, I think what everyone's dying to hear from you about is about the cytotoxic herbs. So I'm (laughs) going to kind of head that way in the conversation now. And I think maybe we could start with, I guess, where you started to learn about the cytotoxic herbs. And maybe even if in the 80s, if you guys were talking about them Mm -hmm. and where you were introduced to the cytotoxic herbs. Yeah. So in herb school back in the 80s, we did talk about some of those herbs Not very much in the context of cancer because we were sort of guided away from treating cancer. It was considered too big and scary for most herbalists to take on board. So we learned about some of those herbs maybe a little bit more theoretically or in less acute applications. Then I found my way to the work of the eclectics. So from the American model of the 1800s, King's American Dispensatory, Finley Ellingwood, people like that, who were writing about some of those herbs, but by no means all of them. And then I would have to say that Donnie Yance is the person that really pushed me to dig deeper. And I do use a formula from Donnie's product line. I will speak of this because I have no financial interests. I'm completely in the clear to promote a particular product line, which was Donnie Yance's Natura Health product, wickedly expensive but profoundly good products, extremely, extremely well formulated. I mean, they are far and away the best formulated herbal products that are in the marketplace. And he has a product called Phytocyto, which is a combination of cytotoxic herbs, 
So I often use that as a jumping off point, and then I will add additional cytotoxics into my custom formulas. So I'm using his proprietary blend as a starting point in many cases, and then customizing per patient. So for example, I've got a patient right now with ovarian cancer where it's all caked on the, literally I'm quoting from her pathology reports, caked on the inside of the diaphragm, the underside of the diaphragm. So they've done loads of surgery, but they can't take her diaphragm out. So so she's left with a whole lot of cakes of cancer across the diaphragm, which obviously is not good for her in all sorts of ways. So I've added into that mix, into her formula, I've added an extra amount of greater celandine, caledonium majus, because it is cytotoxic and antimitotic with specificity to a a strip right under the diaphragm, all the areas served by the splenic nerves, basically in the phrenic nerve. So immediately subdiaphragmatic, that's where its tissue target is, its tropism. And so that's the herb I would add into her mix. I've just gone through a, it wasn't a cancer, but a very, very large ovarian cyst with a patient and nymphaea odorata would be a herb I would add in there to shrink the ovary specifically. So I'll customize according to each patient. So what I found really challenging was to find contemporary literature that was of clinical practice. So there's lots from the eclectic era from 100 plus years ago. And there's lots of really, really good research on isolates or in vitro or injected into the abdominal cavity of an animal bred to have cancer. And I'm like, how do I interpret from that to clinical practice? There was very, very little that I could find of reliable research, contemporary research from clinical practice. Evidence-based medicine was lacking. So there I had to go back to my own clinical practice to say, I've been doing this for 20 years. Donnie's been doing it for 20 years. People who've trained with him have been doing this. What are we seeing? And so the research was actually very, very difficult. And then, of course, when I was looking at the dosing, because I have given dosing to every herb, and boy, oh boy, when you've got dosing from 150 years ago and it's in drachms and minims and grains, and I'm like, oh, brother, how big is a grain anyway? So I had to calculate from those old, old apothecary weights into milligrams and micrograms. And then I had to try and figure out how much of that was in the herb and by the way, I failed grade eight math and never went back. So I have had expert readers look over everything, but I am definitely willing to be corrected. I hope, I hope, I hope there's no dreadful errors in the dosing because it was actually, that was almost the scariest part because they are toxic herbs. But you know what, Carly, I would also say, and I think this is a really important point. There is nothing that we could be giving them in a naturopathic or a herbal practice, nothing that could ever be as toxic as what most of the drugs are. Right. Like the chemo. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. So I try to de-stress myself when I am using a herb, which is notably poisonous, that I cannot be doing more harm than the drugs. And of course, what I was looking for in the book, and I tried very, very hard to find evidence of synergy between the herbs and the drugs. A really good example is with Taxol, which is extracted from bark, And now it's a semi-synthetic drug product, and it's extremely effective for many solid tumors. It's very widely used. Paclitaxol is one version of it, but there are many permutations on it. Very, very widely used. Very effective for a while, short while, and then you quickly start to see resistance. So what is very interesting with the herb, so Taxol is one of so far 27 diterpenes that have been identified in the Pacific U. Several other diterpenes in the whole plant extract, whole bark extract, actually inhibit the resistance. And this happens because they literally downregulate the P-glycoprotein multidrug resistance pumping. So cancer, like any cell, is smart enough to try to get rid of things it doesn't want, kick them out through multidrug resistance pumping. And 
some of the diterpenes in Pacific yew can inhibit that, very much like berberine can inhibit that. So when we put Oregon grape or occasionally golden seal into a formula in cancer, it's not necessarily because they're cytotoxic, it's because they're inhibiting the cells from kicking out the other cytotoxic agents, whether that's a herb or a drug. So when I have a patient taking Taxol, I absolutely want them on Pacific U extract because it will allow them to take less of the drug to gain more effect with less side effects, less collateral damage because the drug stays in the target cell better. So that was the hardest part of the book, really. I spent the most time of all working on the cytotoxics, trying to find the research that I could extrapolate to clinical practice if it wasn't from a clinical practice directly and working out all the dosing. That was very, very tricky. And then you start layering several of those herbs in a formula, and then you really have to look at cumulative dosing and side effects. And sometimes it is in fact by the occasion of the side effects, the occurrence of the side effects that we know it's working. So something like the Artemisia annua you actually want to feel crummy on the days you're taking it because then you know it's doing something. And in fact, we use that as a gauge for how much to take and when to stop taking it. When it stops making you feel crummy, it's probably not got a lot more cancer to work on. Yeah, I mean, you're speaking to the the synergy between the herbs and then also using a whole herb extract or whole herb rather than just an isolate, right? Like how a drug is more would be considered more like an isolate or a constituent of the herb. And I think that that's one of the wise ways that herbs work is that they they don't just have one action, right? They don't have one action within the herb. Yeah, more and and more the research is supporting whole herb use. I mean, for example, Artemisia annua, I know that there are a number of natural practitioners who are using artesanate as an isolate, as an injectable, an IV. And Mm. the great pity of that is that they've lost all of the flavonoids and the flavonoids in Artemisia are integral to the therapy and actually augment the uptake of the active constituent. It's a big stretch for me to look at an intravenous herbal isolate as compared to whole herb by mouth. Obviously, I'm a herbalist. I'm not licensed to give injections, so it's not in my practice. It's not in my wheelhouse. I'm not saying it doesn't work. And I think those things are very, very good for crisis intervention in an immediate, in the moment. But as a longer term survival strategy, I don't know that those are going to serve in the same way that a whole herb might. No, it's working more like a pharmaceutical. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's the right thing for the right time in the right place, right person. That's what it's all about. And I think that's really important for us to remember because, of course, a lot of patients come in vehemently opposed to all medical interventions. And I'm often the one saying, actually, that chemo will work for you and you'd be crazy not to be doing it. Mm -hmm. because of these tests, because of these markers, because of these reasons specific to your case. Yes, that's a good strategy for you. I'm often the one encouraging people back into the medical system so that they can get the best care on every level. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be either or. It shouldn't be alternative. No, it's that collaborative and that holistic. I mean, the title of your book, Holistic Cancer Care. Shinshal, one of my favorite parts of the practitioner side was looking at the clinical pearls of the experience. You get monographs in all sorts of different ways, but I haven't really seen monographs with the clinical pearls and especially around the monographs that you, the short don't use label across it of the cytotoxic herbs. So I really appreciated those clinical pearls piece. And I guess knowing that somebody has used it and like you learn from Donnie and other practitioners well, that are interested in oncology will hopefully learn from you. I think that that was an extremely valuable piece of it, but I still think I'm wondering if you could just speak to that moment that you started, because now obviously you're quite comfortable using the cytotoxic herbs, but that moment when you started to use them and what that felt like at that time. Mm -hmm. I think I've always used herbs that for some other practitioners might have been a bit edgy. Coming out of training in the UK in the early 80s, we were taught 
about using, for example, I have a whole section in there about belladonna and hyacinthus, so, you know, like truly toxic painkilling herbs and gelsemium. And so we were taught about those and I've always used those. So I've always had herbs in my repertoire that are edgy, that are in the locked cabinet because they're toxic mm-hmm. herbs and they're not on the open shelf. So the ones I've added in more recently are herbs like the Artemisia annua that wasn't really in the Western herbal repertoire until relatively recently. And by the way, that's not really, it's cytotoxic, but it's not systemically toxic in the way that, you know, I've definitely got herbs in there like Thuya, for example, which has a long tradition of use. And I certainly learned that in herb school in the 80s, but we learned it mostly as a topical for warts and sort of cervical dysplasia and localized abnormal growth. Using it internally, it definitely has toxicity because of the thujones. But again, when I went looking at the research, I mean, you know, we were all taught, oh, it's got thujone and it's neurotoxic and you have to be really careful. But my God, you'd have to take a lot of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it doesn't taste it, good. <laughs> no, and you know, putting it in context, it's like, yes, there's this research that says Thujone A does this. But when you take it back down to how much Thujone is in the plant and how much plant is in your extract and how much extract is in your formula, I often think we don't use enough of them, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, the research is using quite high doses, and we're so nervous about it. So I'm actually quite known amongst my students for doing fairly high doses because I actually think big disease takes big medicine and you want to get a profound effect. You're going to have to do something profound about it. So was there a moment when I really brought the cytotoxics in? No, I would say that was just part of my training. And I've worked with those sorts of herbs for many, many years. I would say that the big revelation for me was going to apprentice at Donnie Yance's clinic and seeing those herbs specifically in the cancer practice. So I had used a lot of those herbs in a more general sense before treating cancer, before taking on to treat cancer and seeing Donnie's confidence with them. And I could, I could say that there have been a few moments of misplaced confidence where we definitely took a punt on a herb to see what would happen and had a couple of moments like, woo, that was stronger than we intended. Patients always made it through, but there were one or two stories that when patients took more than we had anticipated or had a stronger effect than we had anticipated. And in the book, I talk a little bit about one of my patients who overdosed on gelsemium. And I've told that story many times in class because it was truly terrifying. He was virtually comatose from it. Boy, did I learn fast about how to keep a patient from doing that again. Hint, you put lobelia in your toxic formulas. So if they're going to take too much of something, they'll throw up. It's not difficult to do that. But it took a crisis for me to learn that. And I think sometimes we learn the best from our worst mistakes, don't we? Yeah, and I think that's probably how all practitioners, as much as we like to pretend it's not, how we learn our strongest lessons. I have sometimes proposed at a conference that we should have a panel of dreadful mistakes I've made as a practitioner, but I haven't, nobody's voted to join that panel yet. Yeah, I think it'd probably be good for everyone's psychology to normalize, to hear that we've we've all been there to some degree or another. Shenzhou, you're talking about the cytotoxic herbs and your comfort with it. Have you tested these herbs on yourself? Have you taken most of them internally and just even had that drop dosing experience with them? Yeah, absolutely. I have tasted every herb in my dispensary. I wouldn't say I've had a therapeutic effect from them all because sometimes if you don't have a condition, you won't notice the effect. But I have actually tasted everything. In the book, absolutely everything that I write about in the book, I've done in clinic. There isn't a herb in there I haven't used. There isn't a treatment strategy I haven't applied. And that was sort of ground zero for me. There was a lot of other things I could have put in, but I elected to restrict it only to things I've actually seen and done in clinic, because I'm quite sure that there will be practitioners who will challenge me on some of the things that I say in there because it is controversial medicine. Mm -hmm. But what I can say is I've done all of those things. I've used all of those herbs. And I think that is really, really important because let's be honest, there's a lot of good herb or a lot of herb books out there that look good, that's, you know, look really nice. But when you get right down to it, 
those people are not necessarily clinicians. They're collators of information. And that's a very different thing than the lived experience. And so I think maybe of all the things that I could say I'm proud about in this book is that it is lived experience. Every single thing in there has actually happened in my clinic. That's why you were able to write this book, not an average herbalist, but because you have in the 20 years prior of experience and then working with Donnie and like you said, really experimenting with it and with respect for these cytotoxic herbs as well. So thank you very much for doing that work because <laughs> there's not a reference like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's a work in progress, a living document. And I have no doubt that there will be some errors spotted. And I've no doubt there's going to be things I'm going to want to add in another edition. But so far, I hope it is a, like you said, a, a useful reference book that is a little bit different than all of the other ones out there. And so just to come to a close here, Shanshal, if you could summarize or reiterate, I mean, I can see it exactly in the book on page eight for those that pick it up. (laughs) But a few of those basic steps that people can take when they're faced with a cancer diagnosis, just those global sort of like you were talking about the terrain. If we could just leave people with a few pearls that you've garnered from your experience of treating so many people now with cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would have to say that it's nothing very earth shattering, really, because before you get into customizing a treatment for an individual in that very general sense, I've just been diagnosed. What do I do? The first thing you do is, like I said a few minutes ago, is take a deep breath and a step back to get out of the panic, to get out of the feeling of crisis, because actually it's been there a good long time and it's going to take you a good long time to get rid of it. So you have to kind of wrap your head around that first. And then practical, pragmatic things you can do. And of course, this would be sort of in the world of prevention as well as treatment. I'm a huge believer in going organic, as much organic as you can to put less burden on the immune system and the liver, more vegetables, more vegetables, more vegetables. Michael Pollan, a great hero of mine, he said it very, very well. All you ever need to know about nutrition in seven words, eat food, less of it, more vegetables. Mm -hmm. Right. So right away, it's about go through the kitchen cupboard and throw out anything that's in a package, anything that's got a long shelf life, anything that isn't fresh or isn't going to go bad on you. You probably don't want it in your cupboards because that's all processed. Even if it's brown rice pasta, you'd be better to have the brown rice. So going back to the basics. So I always start with go organic, get rid of all the processed foods, get back to eating food actual food, managing, you know, less of it. That's not always the case in cancer. People may be underweight and we have to work on that and more vegetables. Outside of that, then you start to talk about building terrain. So before you even see your herbalist or naturopath, before you've even got all your blood work back, when you're still in the very beginning, you absolutely can start in with mushrooms and astragalus. If Mm -hmm. nothing else, And there really isn't anyone who isn't going to get benefit from mushrooms, medicinal and or edible, you know, because even the edible ones have medicine. But mushrooms and astragalus is just sort of starting at the deepest level of building foundation. And then you can start to look at your adaptogens and liver and immune, and then finally starting to come around to address the cancer. But first, it's the environment that you're operating in. So you're diet, your toxin exposure and toxic emotional exposure. So cutting out people that are bringing you down or impeding your wellness in whatever way, pruning off the things in your life that aren't serving you so that you can keep your focus and your energy on this. It is the fight for your life. So you need to really clear space for that. A lot of people don't get that. They don't understand that they need to clear space for this work. They actually want to be able to continue to do all the things they've been doing and then layer cancer on top of it. I've heard that like, especially from my girlfriends in their forties with young children. Yeah. And what's going to happen is that cancer is going to come around and bite you in the butt if that's what you do. If you try to compartmentalize it, 
and live all the rest of your life just the same. It is not going to work. You must, at this point, put yourself front and center and focus on your healing. It's going to take a lot. It's not an easy task. Um, I mean, it's not easy going through the medical system either, but when you see a natural practitioner and they ask you to make bone broths and have meditation time, all these things, that will require your attention. And so in the beginning, before you even commit to what all treatments you might need, you want to look at carving out some space to focus on this. And even just to hear that handful of suggestions, probably within that first month, just saying there isn't a rush to be making a decision that not even having a diagnosis myself at this point, but just the down regulation of my nervous system to hear that as a main piece of advice. I think that's absolutely yeah. brilliant to start with that. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, our, our sickness care system tends to foster panic with this diagnosis. And it's very interesting because the patient is put into panic mode, rushed through treatments, rushed through the whole process, and then spit out the other end with no support afterwards. As soon as you finish chemo, you're on your own, mate. And so often what I'm doing is picking up those pieces and helping the patient to work out a really good monitoring plan so that they are being carefully assessed regularly so that they feel that they've still got a good level of support because it is really terrifying. And you are kind of left high and dry as soon as you finish conventional treatment. It's like, oh, that's it. Bye. And, and now like, you're integrating that trauma while physically healing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so first diagnosis, the first few days or weeks, it's a lot about putting the pieces in place to be able to do the healing work. Mm-hmm. And Shenshal, I saw in the patient-centered part of the book, beautiful things like your brighter days tea, which even caregivers and people that are caring for people with cancer could look at using, right? Like the beautiful hawthorn and rose petals mm-hmm. and yeah. those blends that can kind of pick up the spirits for caregivers and patients mm-hmm. alike. So this book is not even just for somebody with a cancer diagnosis, but it's also mm-hmm. can help to educate and give people the language and the tools that are also caring for patients. Yeah, I think there's a lot in the book, especially the first part of the book, that's very sort of generic, really, because I talk about doing detox. I talk about managing microbiome. I talk about dealing with neuropathy. I mean, neuropathy may not just be from chemo. There are other reasons. And so there's quite a lot in even surgery. There's a whole chapter on Mm -hmm. managing surgery that really actually isn't about cancer. Mm -hmm. And so I think that hopefully the book, although it's written for cancer, it does have a bit of a wider application and patients and indeed practitioners may find pieces in there, like you say, some of the recipes that are applicable beyond the diagnosis of cancer alone. And I'm sure even when people have cancer diagnosis, they're maybe intimidated by picking up a big thick book with with complicated words in it. And so therefore, I think having that wider application, like you said, for people that are providing care or helping direct to different modalities, I think it's really, really helpful that way. And I try to make it readable. So although it is a big book with some technical terminology, I did try to make full sentence structure. So it actually flows <laughs> a little bit. You know, I've got some brilliant textbooks here. It's like very choppy text, you know, really good content, really hard to read. Especially the eclectic stuff, like good yeah. luck. I don't know how you got through all those. <laughs> I do yeah, not there's definitely some that. language there. Was, there was some words that's like, whoa, that's pretty old fashioned. I have to bring some of that forward. But I put some quotes, of course, from the eclectics in the book as well, because some of it was just so spot on. Well, Shanshal, you have given us a masterpiece, an absolute reference for our times right now. And like you said, it's a it's a living document and the editions will be updated as they are. But I am so thankful for you and Story Publishing for putting this book into the world. And I guess the last question I'd have is that if people were looking to find out more or where could they buy the book or mm-hmm. do you have any further courses coming up? Yeah, thank you for that little plug. Yes. The book is available on Amazon. People who are listening to this show and are in Canada can also buy it from my website, and then I will sign all the copies that leave my office. Um, But if you're outside of Canada, then I would say Amazon is probably your better choice. 
And for people that want to dig a bit deeper or take some trainings and so on, I have two programs coming up for the more, I would say, foundation audience, the patients or the more beginner general interest herbalist. I am going to be doing a seven-part series with the Shift Network, and we will be starting that at the end of June. So the first notifications will be going out sometime in May about a seven-part series that will be once a week for seven weeks, following the first seven chapters of the book, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then for practitioners who want to go to the more advanced level, I don't have my dates yet, but I am going to be doing an online five or six day intensive, probably sort of two weekends coming up in the fall of this year. And I would say people should just reach me on my website, which is just my name, chanchalcabrera.com. And they can email through there to express interest in the advanced program that will go out on probably online. Well, it will be online. There may be a classroom option, but it will be online as well at the end of the year. Perfect. And we'll make sure that we have links to all of that in our show notes and on our modern day wisdom keepers guild page where everyone can also listen to our conversation today the book is out now isn't it is it the book came out just over a week ago over a week ago i'm so lucky to have my copy in hand and dog-eared and tabbed so again thank you so much chen Chao, not only for the book but for your contribution and dedication to oncology and to herbal medicine. Thank you, Carly. Thanks a lot. It's lovely to see the book actually all tabbed up like that because that means to me that you're actually using it. To me, that's really exciting that you flagged up pieces and that tells me that I I did my job okay. You did it better than okay and I think the world is about to find out. (laughs) Thank you, Carly. Okay, bye for now. Bye-bye.